Okay, if you're a first-time listener, you won't know this, but if you aren't, you will. I have been trying to write more light-hearted and perhaps even funny Divre Torah. Last week's Divre Torah was a bit forced and apparently too long, but this week should be much easier. After all, I'm planning on touching on the deaths of millions, the occasional horrifying hand of God in human experience, and other such topics. There's a natural confluence between a fun and light style and this sort of content. It really ought to be a breeze. But before we get on to all the fun and games, let's cover some serious material. One of the greatest Christian theologians of all time, G. Tote, doesn't have quite the same ring as some other acronym, but I tried, was a guy named Augustine. His life story provided a template for generations of televangelists and cult leaders. You know the whole sinner rebirthed into a life of holiness and purity and talking incessantly about the need to give up physical wealth in the pursuit of the spiritual wealth thing. He was apparently very, very convincing. Really, those televangelists and cult leaders are carbon copies of his original. Except, well, Augustine didn't acquire his own airplane or fleet of Rolls Royces. At least I don't think he did. I'm being mean to Augustine. He actually pushed the idea of giving money to the poor. He wasn't collecting it for himself. Anyway, Augustine was also very prolific. He preached something like 10,000 sermons during his life, and 500 remained a day. He was basically the Joe Rogan of 5th century Algeria. Except, given the lack of podcasting, he delivered the same 10,000 sermons again and again in order to reach a broader, in-person audience. He also wrote a few books. One was Confessions, an autobiography of sorts, sort of a knockoff before its time, of a multicolored coat. And this other book you may have heard of, The City of God. Not the movie, which is a great illustration of the problems in Brazilian slum society, but the book. A central idea in The City of God and sorry if I get this wrong, but it's been decades since I read it, and I'm only using it here to step into other ideas, is that there are two realities. One is the city of man, the world you physically live in and whose laws you follow and whose suffering you must endure. But there's another city, a city that joins believers all over the world, the city of God. You can spiritually dwell in that city, no matter which physical city of man you find yourself in. It is a powerful concept that has taken almost literal form with the rise of the internet. You may live in Chicago or Madrid, but you can also be a part of another city, say, a city of radial tire lovers. Hmm. A city of radial tire lovers. Chicagoans might fight about corruption and crime and policing, but those in the city of radial tire lovers just fight about proper spelling. It's a much nicer place, most of the time. So why am I bringing it up here? Well, because Augustine is fascinating, and not enough Jews know about him, first. And second, because Jews have long struggled with a very similar set of ideas. When I say long struggled, I mean the forefathers had a hard time with this divide. Does the elder son inherit, or does Yaakov get to act contrary to established norms and follow his own path? Does Yaakov submit to local convention and accept the marriage of Leah? Do you get to follow godly instructions and cheat Levan out of his flock and flee? Do the twelve brothers submit to a contract with Shechem, or does a godly rule allow them to slaughter the city in retaliation for rape and forced marriage? Did Avraham live by the law of God, or was he somehow subject to the laws of those he lived among? As far as the Torah was concerned, there's no mention of local laws or rules in Avraham's life. The weight seems to come down firmly on God's laws and God's reality. Avraham effectively lived in a very, very small village of God. Now, this isn't exactly what Augustine was talking about. He wasn't talking about real-life law, following God or man. He was talking about spiritually dwelling on another plane. But Jews love law, so the city of God isn't real for us, unless it has a whole bunch of rules. 
And there's a shared underlying question. What plane do we really live on? To quote a hot dog advertisement, do we in fact answer to a higher authority? The Purim story deals with a very similar problem. The Persian Empire, devised by Cyrus the Great, had different satrapies. They had local kings, local laws, etc., etc. They just owed tax and some soldiers to the central empire. Otherwise, they kind of managed themselves. Every geographical location had its own legal system with limited oversight from above. Then there were the Jews, still hanging on just a bit to laws from a land they no longer occupied. Haman complains they don't follow the laws of the places they live. They have a sort of real physical world city of God. And they don't fit in with the geographically based law system that Cyrus laid down. The obvious answer? Harmonize the system. Erase the Jews. You can't have two legal systems for two kinds of people living in the same place, right? The law applies equally to everybody in a particular place. Well, the Jews of, ancient of the ancient Persian Empire violated this precept. It was like the city of Michelin tire lovers deciding they don't have to pay the same car registration rate because their tires are holier than thou's. The Perm story doesn't resolve this with legal harmonization. In fact, the separate laws principle is not only reinforced, it is redeployed to strengthen the whole system. See, the satrapies were ruled by a local, but a regular imperial auditor with the cool name Eye of the King would come by and examine the books. It's a good system. But with the Jewish people living under Jewish law and connected directly to Mordechai and Susa, you could suddenly have full-time Eyes of the King living everywhere in the empire. So at the end of the story, letters are issued to every province according to its writing, writing and to every people in their own language and to the Jews according to their writing and according to their language. They get their Jewish-style city of God, special laws for special people. Because it ended up tying the whole world together, it resulted in taxes being raised in the last chapter of the Megillah. The emperor was stronger. This whole idea is kind of repelling nowadays. Kind of. On the one hand, we see segregation and apartheid horrifying separate but equal quote-unquote systems. But on the other hand, ideas of reparations or special rules based on ethnic or racial identity are growing in popularity. The idea of being treated differently by the law is gaining traction. It actually isn't such a weird idea historically. In early medieval Europe, you were often subject to the law of your people. If you were a Goth, no matter where you lived, you were subject to Gothic law. Steal another Goth's tires? Death by hanging. But if a vandal in the same place were to steal another vandal's tires? Just three months of roadside service. This, by the way, is a real-world example passed on to me from a real-life scholar of medieval law. There are vestiges of this today. Jews can agree to subject themselves to Jewish civil law in a variety of circumstances in a variety of places. Muslims and non-Muslims are subject to different restrictions in various Muslim countries, and sometimes non-Muslims have fewer restrictions. And some argue that Haredi and Arab society in Israel today is effectively not subject to state law. Haredi society clearly has its own legal systems and enforcement, and the state is kind of hands-off. There are effectively special laws for special people. It just isn't legal. In the modern world, we like to see states and laws defined solely by geography. But many also believe an ethnic layer should apply. So the Russian government believes it should govern Russians everywhere they form a significant part of the population. They want to unify the geography and the people. The Chinese Communist Party believes the same thing. The idea is self-determination around ethnic identity and geography. 
Reports from the 20th century indicate that this idea can get a bit messy. Should we instead seek a path where laws can differ by people even within the same land? Thinking about this last one, would there be more peace in Israel if people could identify themselves with a set group of a minimum size or concentration and have all intra-group disputes and crimes subject to that group's legal system? A sort of officially recognized sectarian law for Haredi, Muslims, or Druze who pull themselves from the standard state system? Intergroup disputes would, of course, continue to be handled by the standard legal system, but intra-group disputes would be internally adjudicated. This is effectively what happens when states with strong ethnic divisions break down. Maybe they wouldn't break down so much if they were meant to run this way. In related news, a recent study published in Nature's Scientific Reports found that virtual reality trips could mimic the effects of psychedelic drugs. So you might treat depression, etc. through a dream machine that created an hallucinogen-like reality, but without the less controlled effects of LSD. The idea is that the mind-bending nature of such VR simulations could break the brain out of various mental ruts and conditions. The study didn't cover whether similar effects might be realized by reading the whacked-out ideas covered in my writing, but I'd like to think so. All of this is interesting, but the really important question is, what forms this sort of legal system? What forms ethnicity? What forms countries and group identities? That's a big question, so we'll basically skip it. Plus, I have no idea what the answer is. Except that a tiny sliver of it is really, really relevant to this week's Parsha and the whole question of where law applies. As I see it as a totally uneducated theorist just guessing, a whole lot of identities are formed through effectively voluntary sacrifice. People are willing to fight and or die for something, Christian martyrs, Ukrainians, whether of Russian or Ukrainian ethnicity, American revolutionaries, Palestinian terrorists. There's a price paid willingly in blood. There's a kind of human sacrifice in the name of X. The bonds that are formed through voluntary sacrifice are powerful. This is why the city of classic Jaguar owners is so much stronger than the city of Lexus owners. But there's another sort of identity-forming sacrifice, the involuntary sacrifice. Black slaves in America, assimilated Jews in Nazi Germany, they don't necessarily fight. They don't necessarily resist. They don't necessarily stand up for who they are. And yet they are oppressed and killed because of their identity. This sort of involuntary sacrifice can also form a powerful identity. The thing is, the resulting identity is formed by others. Southern slave masters and their follow-on oppressors defined American blacks. Nazis seem to have defined many Jews. How many times have you heard, quote, of course he's a Jew, despite the fact that he doesn't identify as one or practice any aspect of the faith? Hitler would have killed him. Can you imagine a Catholic saying, of course he's a Catholic, despite the fact he doesn't identify as one or practice any aspect of the faith? Emperor Diocletian would have fed him to the lions. Jews don't necessarily die for our beliefs. We die for our being. This brings us to Nadav and Aviv. Nadav and Aviv, our own sons, made a mistake sufficiently unclear that we argue about exactly what it was, even today. I've got my theories and have talked about them in the past. The important thing is, God kills them. And then he declares he has been sanctified through their deaths. The idea of sanctification is simple enough. God is timeless, and this extreme punishment serves as a vivid reminder that his laws are timeless and unchanging. There are a million varieties and explanations on this theme. Just attend pretty much any speech in the synagogue next week. 
The thing is, as extreme as they are, these deaths don't stand alone. It seems every major transformation of the people is presaged by an unwilling sacrifice. Avraham, sorry, Avram and Terach leave Ur Kazdim because Haran, another of Terach's sons, dies in front of Terach's eyes. The Jewish people leave Egypt, but not before an unnumbered generation of children are drowned in the Nile. The Aaron Kodesh, the Holy Ark, is moved to Jerusalem, but not before Uziah is struck down trying to prevent it from falling. An entire generation is exterminated in the desert before the people can come to the land of Israel. And the Holocaust occurs before the foundation of the modern state of Israel. Again and again, and I've got no way to make this light and maybe even funny, God takes an unwilling sacrifice from the people. God is sanctified through death. It goes so far the Jewish people say the Kaddish, literally the sanctification, as a marker of every death. We say it in the lingua, lingua franca, at least at the time it was written, of Aramaic, so that it is clear what it means. The prayer starts with, May his great name be exalted and sanctified. The central phrase is, May his name be blessed forever and to all eternity. Holiness is timelessness, and God is somehow sanctified with every death. We are a nation defined by unwilling sacrifice. But we aren't really defined by the Hitlers, the Ferdinands, the Tsars, the peasants, the emperors, the Hellenists, or the Baros who think they were persecuting us. The Nazis don't define who a Jew is. No, we were and are defined by God. God is behind every persecution, every loss, every slaughter. If you ignore the nature of sacrifice and look for the other things that define a people, they just don't apply. The Jewish people are not a people organically developed. We didn't live in one location and learn to cooperate and form some sort of society and identity. We were always defined as not belonging. The very name of the people, Ivrim, Hebrews, means other-siders. No, the Jewish people's culture and freedom and initiative were erased by displacement and slavery and suffering again and again and again. From Germany to Egypt to Israel itself, we have never belonged. We are defined by displacement, and we are defined by God alone. Our identity has been forged by the unwilling sacrifices taken by our God. In a classic Yom Kippur prayer, we read, quote, As iron in the hand of the blacksmith who forges and withdraws at his will, so are we in your hand. End quote. God strikes us, forges us. We are finally withdrawn from the flames only when we take the form he desires. Put another way, ours is not the city of classic jaguar owners, willing martyrs to a beautiful vision. Biblical prohibitions on self-sacrifice reinforce that we do not get to choose our martyrdom. If we did, we would be defining ourselves. No, ours is the city of Lada owners, forced into purchasing a car meant to redefine us as a sort of new man, as if mechanical suffering would have made you a better communist. In the story of Perm, Haman effectively serves as an agent of God, the community was near extinction. Just think about Mordechai and Esther, named after Babylonian and Greek gods. Then it was forcefully rebirthed. Haman revived the Jewish people through his threats. They were facing involuntary sacrifice brought on by God. They were defined by forces beyond them. By the end of the story, they were a people with God's law, no matter where they lived. They formed a physical city of God, in betwixt the cities of man they also happened to be a part of. They formed a society, separate and with its own rules, but living throughout the world. 
Many see Ahasuerus as a stand-in for God. In that case, the Jewish people were not only tying together the Persian Empire, but tightening the bonds between God and mankind as a whole. From a divine perspective, all of this can make sense. Was it better for Haran, Haran to survive, or Avram to find a unique destiny as the founder of monotheism? Was it better for some Jewish babies to survive as slaves, or for the Jewish people to emerge as an example of divine power and values? Was it better for Nadav and Avihu to live, or for the people to understand that God's laws are forever and immutable and ultimately what defines us? Was it better for the people to live, but vanish into European and American society? Or was it better for them to be reforged, so that one can routinely say, of course he's a Jew, despite the fact that he doesn't identify as one or practice any aspect of the faith? Hitler would have killed him. As mortals, we can't embrace this divine perspective. We can't say Kaddish and truly embrace that our loss is worth it because it furthers our definition as God's people. But God does not demand that we embrace or even understand the forever perspective. We need only accept our reality. Standing silent as Aaron does in the moments after his sons are taken. When we accept that our pain is God's decree, we accept that we are being forged by him. Then perhaps we can finally be withdrawn from the fire. Then perhaps we can buy a Honda. This week saw the celebration of Narwuz, a very, very ancient Persian New Year festival. It typically happens between Purim and Pesach. There's spring cleaning, sharing of food gifts, throwing wheatgrass into rivers so your sins float away, lighting bonfires, and stopping when things get familiar. The holiday is identified most strongly with Zoroastrianism. Zoroastrianism was an enormously influential religion. For example, the idea of kipot is attributed to them. Zoroastrians believed in dualism. There's a good god and a bad god. Lada breaks down, that's the bad god. Call him the devil. Lada drives for 40 years, that's the good god. Call him Ahura Mazda, or whatever works for you. It is very satisfying in its way. But Judaism rejects it completely. Every day we say the blessing, quote, Blessed are you, King of the universe, former of light, creator of darkness, maker of peace, creator of all things. For us, God makes the good and the bad, the light and the dark. The dark serves the purposes of God as directly and powerfully as the light does. The Satan is just a prosecutor in the divine court. When I spoke about these ideas at my Shabbat Shior, somebody asked if I thought we were done with the exile and the slaughter. To me, the answer is clear. It is up to us. If we actually define ourselves as God's people, if we walk in God's path as a people, as creators and embracers of his holiness, then the cycle of exile and slaughter will have ended. But if not, the book of Devarim, Deuteronomy, describes the people being brought back from the edges of the heavens, as if we live off-planet. I believe that it is possible that we will be exiled once again. It is possible that the word Kaddish will remain as associated with loss and suffering as it is with joy, peace, and blessing. You see, we can be the forever people. We will be the forever people. God has decided the if, but the when, that remains up to us. A few postscripts. First, all of the above is about the Jewish people's relationship with God. Of course, ours is not the only relationship with God. Ideally, all of the nations of the world will relate to God. Nonetheless, our identity, forged entirely by God, 
is meant to serve a unique and powerful role in bringing this ideal to life. Second, for more about my perspective on human purpose, but a perspective that is actually light and somewhat funny almost all the way through, check out A Multicolored Coat, which is available on Amazon. My wife, Rebecca, says that if I sell 200 copies, she'll let me make an audiobook version. And finally, if you enjoyed this, share it with others. Hand the printout to the next person over in shul, put up a quick little comment about why you enjoyed it, post it on Facebook, Twitter, or whatever. It would really be appreciated. Plus, I've heard that sharing pain can build community. And I'm simply too lazy to give 10,000 sermons a few times apiece. Thank you, have a good week, and a Shabbat Shalom.